Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This is Wellness 101, brought to you by the Institute of Natural Health, your home for common sense science-based health care. Here's your host, Dr. T.J. Williams. And welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. T.J., and with me, as always, is Aaron. Hi. Today on the show, so the last couple of shows, we've uh, answered some questions that we have received, and apparently that has gone over very well because we got flooded with more questions, and so we're just going to take a show, maybe even do another show in the future and take the time to answer some of these questions that have been sent to us. Right. I There are a number of things that we, you know, have like questions that we've gotten that are good questions, but we certainly don't feel like there's enough material to do an entire show on it. But because I think the situations are somewhat common, um, you know, are similar to what other people would experience. We're like, well, let's just put it all in one show and just kind of gather some of them up. So like TJ said, I mean, this is, you know, by no means um, even a large number of the ones that we received, but we just kind of chose a number of them to talk about today and we may do more shows this way. I, I Actually, I wasn't prepared for the amount of emails that would come in saying, hey, you answered questions. What about this? What about that? What about something else? And I mean, I was actually kind of blown away. So thank you to those of you who wrote to us. People are listening. Yes, people are listening. <laughs> That's yeah. what we always say. Yay. We're like, people are listening. <laughs> so so we'll just jump right in. Um, we're going to, we, we've got varying topics today. There's no, there's no set schedule. We'll get through as many of these as we can get through and whatever's left over. Well, maybe we'll do another show like this in the future. So the, the first question that we're going to address is it came in and basically said this, if I'm going to use sugar, what should I use a natural sugar or an artificial sweetener? It's actually a pretty good question because, uh, you know, if we follow mainstream information out there, it, they, you know, the, the food industry would lead you to believe that an artificial sweetener is better for you because it has zero calories and, and the, you know, varying uh, dietitians associations and things will, will say that, you know, if, if you're diabetic, then, you know, you want something to have artificial sweetener in it you don't want to have sugar blah 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 well that's 
that's not entirely true. Um, artificial sweetener is is not good for you. Obviously, we've talked on this show ad nauseum about how bad sugar is for you. But if you're going to consume some sort of sugar, it really truly needs to be a natural form of sugar. These artificial sweeteners are just, they're not good for us. Um, they're several hundred times sweeter uh, in the brain. Our brain registers these things as several hundred times sweeter than sugar. And while they these artificial sweeteners may not cause an immediate rise in blood sugar, what happens is they the the signals this this super sweet signal is telling the brain hey there's some really sweet stuff going on and we're going to get some of this and so what happens long term is we actually increase insulin levels and when we increase insulin levels long term while we don't see that immediate rise in blood sugar we see this this long term rise in insulin which will cause our blood sugar to drop and then what happens is we crave sugar. So this is the classic example of you see someone drinking a diet soda and eating a candy bar. Their, you know, their their body is saying their 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 mind is saying I need to if I'm going to drink soda I need to drink this zero calorie soda because this artificial sugar is better for me than the real thing. But their their brain and their drive is saying, hey, your blood sugar is going down. you got to get some actual sugar into your system or you're going to be in a bad way quick. That's the conundrum that, have, that people have gotten into. These artificial sweeteners are not good for you. They're, they're registering your brain several hundred times sweeter than actual sugar. They're Even though they don't taste sugar? Because I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I can't drink regular soda. I would never drink regular soda. It's way too sweet. Um, I have to drink diet. Yeah, that's that's actually not that's not true at all. I mean, we already know that science has shown that these artificial sweeteners are hundreds of times sweeter in sh- than sugar. They just are. And wh- all you're doing is you're training your brain to register this sensation of sweetness, not actual sugar. Right? It's no different than if someone's eating tons and tons of sugar and they eat fruit. It doesn't really taste that sweet to them, when in reality, fruit is super sweet. Fruit is nature's candy. But if you take someone who, you know, you if we have a diabetic and we take them completely off of all sugar, completely off of all artificial sugar, completely off of all fruit, because that's what's necessary, that's what's needed for them to get better, right? And then they introduce fruit back into their diet once their A1C comes down, their insulin comes down, their blood sugar comes down, they talk about oh my gosh, I didn't realize peaches were as sweet as they are. It's because they've trained their brain that to not notice the sensation of sweetness. So you're saying if someone was not used to eating sugar at all and they drank soda, regular soda and diet soda, one wouldn't taste sweeter than the other? Um, well, so... the. Now you're getting into chemistry and the science of the, uh, the, the food science of this. So what they're trying to do is basically trick your brain, Yeah. right? They're trying to trick your brain to say, you need to have more of this. These artificial sweeteners, not only are they several hundred times sweeter than sugar, they're more addicting. So this is kind of like what we talk about with fast food. Like if you don't normally eat fast food it's going to be seem extremely rich and like too much for you yeah and likely and likely super salty and all the other things but if you 
eat it on even a somewhat regular basis, then other food seems like it doesn't have any flavor. Other food seems bland. Home-cooked meals seem yeah, very bland. We, we hear that all the time with kids, with people that say, you know, well, you won't eat chicken at home. We'll only have Kentucky Fried Chicken or only have chicken nuggets at, you right. know, McDonald's or whatever. So, um because these, fa- these fast food places and the, the, these guys that are in the food industry, they are manipulating your taste buds. They're, they're balancing the just the right amount of saltiness, sugar, and fat. They're trying to get this just right to where it drives you to eat more. I mean, Lay's Potato Chips, they're, they're, uh, their slogan for a long time was, Bet You Can't Eat Just One. I mean, they were working on and perfecting that addictiveness, that or addiction, addictiveness. I think that's a word, right? The addiction of having to eat more, right? Because these things, the the flavor palette just hits your brain just right. I mean, remember things that that you taste that's just sending these signals straight to the brain. Which is why, if you eat whole foods, healthy foods, you tend to like healthy whole foods and healthy foods i mean at least you know as long as you're seasoning it uh correctly it seems like it has a lot of flavor that is absolutely correct that's why it's why people once they start turning you know if they come to us and they're like i need help and this is what i'm eating and they're they're eating lots of fast food or lots of you know ready-made meals and quick stuff and and they're they're just eating horrible for you foods and we change that and transition them over into to an actual food they will come back to us down the road and and talk about how they can't eat such and such anymore they can't handle this anymore this is way too sweet for them now they they just they don't even have the the urge to consume that type of food that makes sense it also makes sense though that um when people say it just doesn't taste good to me or you know it doesn't seem like it has enough flavor they're being truthful probably it just is going to take a little bit of time right oh no they're exactly being truthful they're telling you exactly what they taste and what they feel so it does really seem bland to them that is that is yeah. correct and you can tell like i can tell these people someone who sits down and start salting their food before they even taste it to see if it actually needs salt. Something's messed up in their in their taste sensation, their taste buds. Like there, something is off. That is not a healthy way to go about eating food. Yeah, well, I mean, and you say that, but that also makes me think. Um, I've had people uh, who you know who have seen me eat at home. You know. Um, who have been at our house and I will normally add some salt and like, Oh, you add salt. And I'm like, there isn't salt in our food when you're cooking with whole, you know, they're so used to eating packaged foods that they can't imagine, you know, needing to add salt because salt's already in it. And I'm like, well, when you're eating normal, you know, meat and vegetables. And not to mention that our kids eat what we cook and it's not healthy for a kid to be eating a heavily salted food. Right. Like, that that is not good for them. That's not good for them. So at anytime all. we make something, we don't add any salt, and then the kids get it completely or, unsalted. Or if um, we add it, we add very 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 little. very little, um, and so they get it without any salt. And then we sometimes will add a little more salt when we eat it. But um, but Correct. compared to anything you'd get packaged, it's very low. Yes, very low. And so. And, and we're actually using the, you know, we're not using table salt, a sodium chloride 
you know, not really good for you at all salt. We're using Himalayan sea salt or Celtic sea salt. We're, we're using actual healthy salts too. So there's that. All right. I think we answered that question enough. Let's move on to question number two here. Um, the, the next question that we received is I have heartburn and I'm taking an antacid. Um, I've heard basically that I'm paraphrasing here. They've heard that we've discussed the why you should not take acid reducers on our show. And then their ultimate question is, what do I do if I have bad heartburn? I, I need to do something. So that is a, a fantastic question. Um, there are actually, there, there's, there's multiple steps that need to be done if we're really wanting to address the acid levels. You, you, you know, short term, you may need an antacid. You may need a crutch. But those things are not made to be taken long term. Now, we've got to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to get into, you know, using an antacid as a crutch versus being on an antacid for 20 years. There's two completely different things here. And so we're going to we're going to get into that and then what you should actually do for yourself if you feel like you have heartburn, you know, terribly or you have frequent heartburn and what you can do, the steps that you can do to reduce that heartburn. You're listening to Wellness 101. Welcome back to the show, everyone. If you're just tuning in today, um, we have been answering um, questions that have been sent to us by our listeners. Um, the first question that we answered was, if, if I'm going to use a sugar, should I use a natural sugar or artificial sweetener? And we have since moved on to, I have heartburn, I'm taking an antacid, I know I shouldn't be taking an antacid, but what do I do if I have bad heartburn? And so I had said right before the break that Taking an antacid as a crutch to give you time to figure out the trigger and why you're having heartburn, that's one thing. Taking an acid reducer for 20 years is a completely different ballgame. I mean, we have people that come into the clinic with that are taking some sort of antacid very frequently. And unfortunately, antacids really die. Uh, disrupt your digestion. They change the pH in your stomach, which changes your body's ability to break down food, which changes, you know, what happens when when bile and pancreatic juices hit that food. Chemical reactions are different. Nutrient absorption goes way down. We just, we, it's not healthy for us. So if we do have bad heartburn and we're needing an antacid to get us through because it's just so painful, We've got to figure out what's triggering that. The, the big thing that we can do, you know, conventionally they'll tell you stop eating acidic foods and stop eating this and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, people that have bad heartburn, they've already tried that. The key is to actually test yourself and figure out what foods are potentially triggering this. The other thing to do is get some digestive enzymes. The, the number one problem with digestive problem of anyone, I think it's over the age of 35, is atrophic gastritis. 
That means that our stomach is inflamed and it's not making enough stomach acid. That's really what that means. So the number one digestive problem is not making enough stomach acid. It's not too much acid. It's so rare, so few, and so far between that in all the years that I've practiced, in all the hundreds if not thousands of patients that I have either consulted with or treated, I've had one person who's actually had too much acid in their stomach. You can test it. It can be tested. It's not a fun test to have to do, but it can be tested to figure out if you have too much acid in your stomach. We've had one. Almost everyone else, they get benefit from getting a digestive enzyme on board, but then it turns into what digestive enzyme? This is where things like a stool test can be beneficial because it can tell us what's being broken down and what's not. Do you need something that helps the gallbladder digest food? Do you need something that increases... Um, the amount of, of acid in our stomach. Do you have do you have heartburn because you have increased intra-abdominal pressure? So you can have all this extra pressure in your abdomen, and that could be forcing food back up into your esophagus, causing heartburn. A lot of times when that's happening, it's from, from a couple of different things. One, we have lots and lots of gas going on in our in our small and, and or large intestine that's that's pushing this stuff back up. You know, which could be we we have a bacterial overgrowth or a bacterial imbalance, or we're just overweight. That can be enough. Another one that a lot of people don't really even consider is poor posture when eating, if or we, immediately after eating. Yeah, or immediately after eating, we we eat and then we sit on the couch and we're all hunched over, like. Sometimes it's literally just as simple as eat a meal, sit up nice and tall while you eat, eat your meal, and then get up and walk right after you eat. I was going to say, that's one of the things, one of the reasons why taking a walk after eating can be so beneficial to people is because it forces you to be upright. You know, you're not going to be hunched over. Right, and it, it exercise improves motility. Right. It gets your digestive system operating. Like, it, sometimes it's just the simplest little thing that makes all the difference in the world. And, you know, our job for this show is to educate people on steps that they can do on their own. If that stuff's not working for you, by all means, you know, f come see us. Find a functional medicine practitioner in your area to, to get some help to figure out. Figure out what foods that you're sensitive to so you can stop eating the things that may be triggering it. I mean, it could be something as simple as coffee or eggs or, you know, the five pounds of dairy that you're eating every single day. Um, there's just so many different things that can be triggering it. Or it could be a health food, a quote-unquote health food that's not good for you. What if you eat broccoli all the time and broccoli is actually the trigger? Right. I mean, we I had one uh, – it's uh, – a friend of mine who was like, all right, I need your help, TJ. We've got, this is what's going on. I need to lose weight, et cetera, et cetera. And we didn't even talk in our initial consultation about the fact that, that this person, that this lady had heartburn every morning. And so we did her food sensitivities to help her lose weight. And we identified that one of her food sensitivities was eggs. And so she stopped eating eggs. She sent me a message three days after she started and was like, TJ, I just want you to know that I quit eating eggs because they were on my food sensitivity, and I don't have heartburn anymore, and I've had heartburn every morning for the last I don't know how many years. 
because her breakfast consisted of eggs in some form or another, whether it was an omelet, scrambled egg whites. It didn't matter. She was eating eggs every single morning because she thought that that's what you do is you get up and you make sure to get some high-quality protein in your diet. And while eggs are a high-quality protein, they were terrible for her and were triggering her heartburn. It was mind-boggling to her. She could not believe that something as simple as that was the trigger for all of her issues. Well, I mean, and as far as heartburn, I mean, we hear that a lot because people have been to numerous doctors or have tried a number of different medications. No one has ever brought up food sensitivities. I mean, how often do we hear that? Right. That they're just like, seriously, I could just quit eating a certain food and I wouldn't have had to be on this medication this whole time? Yep. 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 And if you're having heartburn every single day, Without testing, you can just identify what foods or drinks you consume every single day or at least every other day and just stop consuming that for two weeks and see what happens. I bet your mind will be blown. Yeah, and we've been kind of led to believe that it has to be spicy food or it has to be, you know, I mean. Or it has to be acidic food. Acidic food. And that's what, you know, what could possibly cause heartburn. It's not true. We're all unique and, you know, we all have our individual issues. And so it could be something that no one else has a problem with, but you do. And that's why you have heartburn. Yep. All right. I want to go on to our next question. Um, the next question is a, is a really good one. Um, it's she. This lady wrote in and said, my husband has had gout three times in the past couple of years. Is that something you help? Yes, it is. Um, he's now on a prevent, preventive medication, but it hasn't seemed to help, and it is extremely painful when he gets it. So for those of you who may not know what gout is, gout is this inflammatory disorder that tends to affect the um, big toes of people who get a gout flare it makes it extremely painful to walk. Um, it's extremely to do painful. anything. Yeah, really. I mean, like just they, you know, just we, having a shoe on it hurts. Right, or putting the sheet over your um, yourself at night. Yes. like it just very simple things. It's that painful. And it's. I just want to be clear that it's not always just the big toe. Right. Sometimes it can be the thumb. And that's that's the one that really baffles people when they come in and they've got thumb pain and they don't realize that it's gout because they think that gout is always associated with a foot. But the biggest thing with gout, so I tell people, first and foremost, stop eating meat for a few days. Like, just give it a trial run to get meat out of the system. A lot of times, well, what gout is, is it's a, it's a, it's a problem with with breaking down purines and that has to do with meat and I'm not going to get into all the science of it. I just want to talk about, you know, general overview type information here. So stop eating meat can be very beneficial and it's an easy thing to do. But sometimes it's not all meat, it's very specific meat. Sometimes it's just red meat that is the problem. And people can have chicken and pork and turkey and things like that. Or sometimes it's it's land animals that are the problem, and people can have seafood and they have no issues eating seafood. It the the main thing to do here is to test and figure out what's going on. Another thing that can be beneficial is stool testing, just to see what do do you have bacterial imbalances or enzyme imbalances that suggests that your body needs some sort of of digestive enzyme to help you break down 
those proteins. Maybe it's just an inability of your body through age or dysfunction that you just need digestive help to help you break these foods down. Sometimes it's literally that simple. Could drinking more water help? Drinking more water can help. Stop drinking alcohol can help. Um, anything that dehydrates you can be problematic. Um, and making sure to have plenty of water. Most people don't realize that they're, they're chronically dehydrated. I mean, in our office, we have a device that allows us to look at uh, body composition of people, and it tells us what people's total body water is. And the vast majority of people are actually chronically dehydrated, and they have no idea. Even, even people who look at me are like, but, but Doc, I, I drink a gallon of water a day. Like I, I understand that you you could drink two gallons a day, it doesn't matter. You don't get credit for what you drink. You only get credit for what you absorb. The same is true with eating. You don't get credit for what you eat. You only get credit for what you absorb. And if your system is broken and you don't absorb well, well, you're setting yourself up for chronic disease, or you're being set up for chronic disease. And this is where we can come in and we can help identify these things to help you get better. Okay. All right, we got to take another break. Um, when we come back, um, we're going to continue to answer more questions. You're listening to Wellness 101. And welcome back to the show, everyone. If you're just tuning in today, we are answering uh, listener questions, um, and so far we've answered questions on the topics of sugar, heartburn, and gout. What's um, well, a lovely trio of questions? And our uh, our next question comes from a mama who is concerned with her 17-year-old daughter. Her question is, my 17, or my daughter is 17 and has had five yeast infections over the past couple of years. Is there a natural way to treat this? So the short answer is yes. Um, it, it is, it, I think yeast infections are something, are more common than what most people realize. I don't think, I don't think uh, the general public understands how frequent women deal with yeast infections and nowadays how much more frequent they are at a younger and younger age. I, I have some pretty strong opinions on this. I'm, I'm not 100% convinced that this is not diet related most of the time. I, I just right. think there can that be other causes, but a lot of the time it's diet related. A lot of the time. I mean, it, and when it's other causes, well, that may not necessarily be my specialty. But most of the time when I have a new patient on the schedule and our notes, you know, say that, you know, the big complaint is recurrent yeast infections. I can almost guarantee with certainty that they've already been to their to their gynecologist and have already tried all of the traditional medicine, antifungal medications and, and things that, that are recommended on the conventional medical side and they're not getting help. It's, it's not working. Well, it's, you know, I think more than, you know, most of the time 
it will clear up the yeast infection, but they then they will get another one. It's the Comes fact right that back. they just keep, you know, um, a few months later, they've got another one and a few months later. Yeah. And so then it's, you know, they're starting to wonder, okay, did it clear it up or is it, you know, has it ever actually been gone? Why am I getting them over and over and over? Yes. Happens more than more than you realize. And a lot of the times I start with things as simple as let's check out your gut. Let's figure out what foods you're consuming. And I know it seems like we're, it's a broken record, but so frequently our digestive system in our body is broken. We're eating foods that are terrible for us. We're eating foods that aren't even actual food. Um, we're eating, you know, highly processed, n- no nutrient. Well, and especially junk. high sugar, high carbohydrate can really lead to systemic yeast overgrowth, yes. right? Yes. Yes. And, you know, a lot of these people, a lot of these, these women that are having yeast infections, not only are they having that, but when we really get down to it, most of them are going to the dermatologist for some sort of skin thing. They either they're being treated for eczema or psoriasis or something like that. When in reality, it could just be a yeast infection on their skin, or they've got they've got terrible fungal fingernails or toenails, and they it's it's diet driven almost all the time. It's diet driven and and gut imbalance, and we've got this yeast overgrowth just rampant throughout their body, and they just need help, right? We and just, conventional medical doctors do not test for that. They don't test for it, and they don't recognize that diet can be the cause of your problems. Right. That's where the that's where the rub is. Is they're like, oh no, it's that's not it. Like, in in conventional medicine, unless it's a, a severe anaphylactic reaction to something, they don't think that food has any role whatsoever in your health. Well, and I think it's important. Um, you know, to mention what struck me about this question was that it said what, you know, what kind of alternative treatments, like, do you treat this? It wasn't even saying like, hey, is there a way to prevent these from occurring? It was saying, hey, because they occur so often, do you have a way to treat them that, you know, is different than what we've tried? And I just think that's kind of sad to me that we don't even think about the fact that we could stop them altogether. So I actually have a little note. Our, our next question, the exact same ending of the question, when we get to it, is this something that, or is there something you can do to treat this? That's the, that's the next question that's yeah. coming after we get done talking about this yeast infection. And I've got a note that this question right here tells me that the vast majority of the general public has been brainwashed to believe that healthcare is an outside-in thing, that something goes on wrong with you, and then we give you something to fix it. It has. They're not asking what can we do to stop this. Right. That's the. That would be an inside-out question. That's a how can I build myself up to be a healthier me. The question, can you treat this, is what do you have? Like like I have some magic ball, like magic eight ball that I'm looking into, this crystal ball saying, oh, this is, this is the three things that you need to actually make this go away. When in reality, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make this person healthier. We're figuring out what's triggering the problem. What's the root cause of this? Why is this stuff happening? What's wrong with the person? 
And we address those issues. Right, which is one of the reasons why we almost always say, yes, we can help. You know, whatever the condition is, yes, we can help because we build the body up. We figure out why something is happening and we fix the body so that that no longer happens. We don't just give you something to take away a symptom. It's a completely different way of looking at it. Yes. And the, I, it's obviously it's a, it's a question that we get all the time and, and Aaron is correct. Typically our answer is yes, we can help. And like, just think about that. In if you're listening to this show, just think about how many times you've had something go on and you're just like, what can I, what can I do take to get rid of this? And it's, you know, let's, let's take, let's take headaches, for instance, lots and lots of people have suffered with a headache, at least at some point in their life. And what do people do? They run to grab an Advil or a Tylenol or an aspirin or whatever pain reliever they have at the, at the time, rather than say, why am I getting this headache? Right. Yeah. I mean, and we say that a lot, you know, anytime you have a symptom that you should get curious, you know, why is this occurring? I get that when something happens, you know, like you get a headache, your initial concern is probably, all right, I want to get rid of the headache. Then I can deal with, you know, what caused it in the first place. Um, if there's, if it's something that's recurring, right. Um, yes. but it, you know, a lot of people never get to that second question. They get to like, let's, let's fix it or, you know, so-called fix it, quote unquote, fix it. Um, you know, let's get rid of the symptom and then they move on. Right. You know, they never get to, okay, what can I change so that I don't experience this in the future? And this, and this is how people get into my office taking, in this instance, um, basically taking a, a, you know, anti-fungal or anti-yeast suppository every single week to try to keep yeast infections at bay. And then eventually they're just like, okay, this, is, this can't be right that I have to do this all the time to not have a yeast infection. Or I have to take 12 Tylenol every single day to not have a headache. Like, at some point we have to say, what's wrong? What's broken? What do we actually need to address here to stop this from happening rather than just cover up the symptom over and over again? Right. Yeah, our point is there's always a reason. I mean, I just, it, it struck me because I know we've had people come in before who are very proud of themselves and yeast infection specifically for treating it naturally. And, but it never thought about the fact that they could change something and quit having them. You know, they were like, why yeah. don't, I don't take, you know, the medication. I'm able to, I know we've heard all sorts of essential oils, like all sorts of different things yeah. that people have, you know, said work, you know, to get rid of the symptom. But it's just interesting to us because, you know, our first thought is let's just prevent it from happening at all. And then we don't have to work on treatment. <laughs> it's a novel concept. It's a novel concept. All right. I want to I want to shift gears and move on to the next question. This is a this is a this is a good one. This question says, um, I'm in my mid 20s. I'm, I'm going to go ahead with this treat treat this question. I'm in my mid-20s and I've been experiencing hair loss. Is there something you can do to treat this? Again, this is not something I'm looking into my magic crystal ball and saying, oh, your hair loss, here, take this and your hair loss will stop. Oh, and I want to point out, I mean, that was a longer question. This was a female, but I mean, this oh, yeah. works for both male and female. I mean, right. um, but I know that this, I remember this one specifically and it was you know, incredibly distressing because it was a female that was experiencing the hair loss. Yes. And so, yes, but the answer is 
to f let's figure out what's causing the hair loss. There are a lot of different things that can be causing the hair loss. And like, I, I, we got to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about different things that can be causing hair loss and what can be done to help prevent this from happening or stop this from happening and then prevent it, reverse it to where you don't have to deal with it for the rest of your life. You're listening to Wellness 101. Welcome back to the show, everyone. If you're just tuning in today, we've been answering listener questions. Um, we've talked about um, sugars and artificial sweeteners, heartburn, gout, yeast infections, and we're just getting into a female in her mid-20s that's experiencing hair loss. Um, is there something you can get to treat this? And, you know, the answer is we can help. The real answer is let's we have to figure out what's triggering the hair loss there are different things that can be causing hair loss to happen um typically we're we're having to look hormonally whether it's the thyroid um, estrogen testosterone you know these types of things are the the main causes of what's driving someone's hair loss could be nutrient deficiencies, could be, you know, not having enough protein in the diet. You know, they're like vegans, hardcore vegans can experience some hair loss if they're, if they're not getting enough protein. Um, and not because on purpose, they're just, they're not realizing, oh, I'm, I need way more protein than I'm consuming in a day. Those are your typical, typical reasons for this. So our job is to identify what is it that's actually causing the hair loss, what's out of balance. Now let's start to fix that. Now the issue with hair loss is it's not something that you see turn around really quickly. I mean, you're looking at a good three to six months of, of heavy intensive work once we've identified what the issue is to get function and, and hair growth started again. And that's just started. And that's just- Right, I mean, that's the yeah. issue, especially in the case of a female. Um, you know, who has wants a lot more hair growth. I mean, yeah, it is going to take a while. So other things out there, if you've already looked in those directions, other things that are out there are infections, chronic infections that you don't even know that they're, they're hidden. You don't even know that you have. Toxic chemicals can be a cause of this. I mean, there are, there are several different things that happen to someone to cause... You know, what about parasites? Hair loss. Parasites can trigger this sort of stuff. I just always think that when it's something random, I always think, like, eh, that's a possibility. There are so many things that, that can happen. I mean, we have a young lady in our office right now. Her hair is finally starting to grow back in, but her hair fell out. I mean, this beautiful young girl, her hair falls out. I mean, what what do you do? As a parent, I don't know. I would panic. And, like... They started looking for answers and started figuring this stuff out, and their journey led them to us. And you know, we've been working for a few months now, and we've we've got some hair growth coming back. You know, she she doesn't necessarily feel great yet, but you know, we're we're moving in the right direction, and we can see the outward signs are starting to come back that health is starting to improve. And it's a it's a long road, and it's going to be a long journey, but 
you know, we're in it for the long haul. We're there to, you know, get this thing turned around and and help this young lady out. And it, she's not alone. Other people have this sort of stuff happen to well, them. Well, and it's funny. Actually, what struck me was that I've seen a number of, like, influencers on Instagram that are fashion influencers that have become really big into wigs because of hair loss. Yep, they're covering and it. that is totally, I mean, no, you know, judgment at all as far as, wearing wigs but it also makes me sad that they you know they have just kind of assumed that they drew the hair loss card right right? no one has been able to explain the hair loss you know people say well maybe it's stress or maybe it's but they don't really have an answer so um yeah our point like with everything is there's always a reason yep all right we've got one last question i want to get to um this was a this was one that we we picked out i liked it um the question is this. My pediatrician recommended that I start my baby on rice cereal at four months. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. As soon as this one came through, I was like, oh, no, we're, we're addressing this one. Um, my pediatrician recommended I start my baby on rice cereal at four months. My friend said that's not a good idea. What do you recommend? Um, yes, we definitely recommend do not start rice cereal. It completely messes up the digestive system of a baby. Babies are, that's way too early to start a child on rice cereal. It's extremely frustrating that pediatricians um, recommend this. And also, one of the reasons why I want to do this is because I see so many people do it that I can't say anything. So I'm I'm just going to put this out there in case anyone is considering it um, or has been told it's a good idea. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. It's not. Um, it, there, there are so many things. Basically, you're training when you when you throw rice. Rice is a is a is a very easily digested thing. Not to mention that rice is you know rice is high in arsenic. It's high in high in you know the heavy metal arsenic. And so we're just because of the way that it's processed. Way it's I processed. Mean, the, the way it's, that it's well, and raised. It's, it's raised. Grown, yeah. It's grown. It's <laughs> naturally it's naturally high in arsenic. And like now we're putting this into an infant whose blood brain barrier hasn't hasn't been fully formed i mean it's kind of like fast food for a baby yeah right i mean like it's it goes uh, easily into their system and of course they eat it they think it tastes good right and And then they be they get a craving for that kind of food the other thing i mean we're saying that it's easy easy into their system but one of the other issues is i mean i thought this question i don't know if you said that or not that they were talking about doing it at four months but i did amylase is the enzyme that's needed to break down rice correct correct and babies don't the start producing the pancreatic in, um, enzyme amylase until like eight months or so. Right. So they don't even have it. I mean, they have it some a little bit in their saliva, but not enough to break it down. Correct. So you're putting something in their system that their bodies simply aren't, you equipped know, to equipped to handle at that point. Yep. Yes. So, so our, there's scientific reasons not to do it. Yes. Um, you know, it, I always go back to if you can manage it breast milk at least only at least until you get past six months if you can go to a year great some babies start to get hungrier a little earlier than that mama maybe doesn't produce as much milk. Or what if they're on formula um don't even get me started on that i'm not a huge fan of formula right but i mean there's necessities i mean certainly sometimes sometimes it's necessary yes you're right and so even if they are on formula, you still don't want to introduce the rice super early. We want to you know, bring in foods, foods bring in yeah. actual food when you bring this stuff in. 
I mean, there are lots and lots of easily accessible charts of what do you bring in at six months, at seven months, at eight months, at, at you know, all the way up to a year. Like, they're, they're super simple and they're readily available. I mean, all you right. got to do is Google search and it can show you very easily, hey, these are some, these are foods that you can bring in when and and if you if you want to know why, I'm sure somewhere it tells you, but it has to do with the sugar content in the food, the starchiness of the food, how easily it is digestible by the by the baby, and everything needs to be cooked for a baby, right? It's all got to be steamed or at the or very beginning. At the beginning. Yeah, I mean, then they can have raw. Um, one thing I want to throw in really quickly is that a lot of people look at this, um, you know, rice cereal is an easy fix. It seems like an easy fix. A lot of people will add it to the bottle. You know, they get a little more um, time for the baby to sleep at night. But, you know, I always look at it, okay, um, in long term, what's going to be easiest? Not for, you know, for the baby and for you. So not only is it going to, you know, be harmful to your baby over time because it's going to introduce them to foods they shouldn't be eating and they're going to be craving certain things, but their gut's going to be messed up. So they're going to probably be harder to deal with as they get older. Yep. So just as a form of self-preservation, and, try to delay that because um, and, it'll be easier to parent them. And think about this. When the digestive system, when the gut is broken, we're talking about everything that goes along with a broken gut ends up being a broken brain. So you end up with higher incidences of AD, ADD, ADHD, you know, depression, anxiety, everything that goes along with our ability to make these neurotransmitters. They're all made in our gut. They're used in our brain, but they're made in our gut. And if the manufacturing process is screwed up, the utilization is not going to be there. Like it's just the it's just the way it is. There's too much information out there that you know says, hey, there's a better way to do things. So that's our suggestion for what it's worth. All right, that's about all the time that we have for today. I hope that you guys really enjoyed um, having us answer these questions. They were very good questions. Um, if you want more information, please visit us online at inhstl.com. Um, email us at info at inhstl.com. Call us 314-293-8123. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at inhstl. Um, shoot us messages. Shoot us questions if you have anything. We're, we'd love to hear from you. Um, for Aaron, I'm Dr. TJ. This has been Wellness 101. Thanks for listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.